It's John again from A's for Alcoholic. Today's conversation is with Sean Barry Parsons. I found him on TikTok. He is a performer, actor, writer, uh, all around awesome sober knot, and he was kind enough to share some of that good old experience, strength, and hope. With us today, one of my favorite things that we talked about is the often overlooked eating disorders that men deal with on a regular basis. We talked anorexia, we talked sobriety, recovery, relapse, recovery, and having fun with sobriety, being creative, and not being afraid to express yourself. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Sean Barry Parsons. I just think it's a trip that I found you on. Um, first, thank you for yeah. for for agreeing to talk with me. My but pleasure. I found you on uh, TikTok of all places. Yeah. And I was scrolling through, and you know, sometimes I get a chuckle out of things, and sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, that's all right, and whatever. And I found myself laughing out loud. At oh, the- a high compliment. Thank you. I never laugh out loud at almost anything. I'm always so stoic. And I'm like, that was very funny. Thank you. Right. And so yeah. it was the um it was it was the Helen Cumlicker. Oh, and yes. um I'm yeah. I don't know if she's your most popular character, but um yeah, my favorite. Mm-hmm. And I thought this is great. And it's just so quick and sharp and yeah, Helen, um, I, I have a repertoire of various ladies that I do, but Helen definitely is the one that kind of catapulted immediately. People really mm-hmm. took to her. Um, and she's, uh, I mean, she's based on a very real woman, too, actually. She's a composite of two women that I wait on. You know, my survival job and up until the pandemic was uh, waiting tables on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just a jungle of Helen Cumlickers. You know, they're everywhere. That's a very, <laughs> my friend joked, he was like, that's like a New York Karen. That's a New York City rich Karen. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's, she's her own breed. She's a dying breed. She's the ladies who lunch. You know, she's a very specific type of woman. Right, right. And so it was great. And then you did the um, Helen Cumlickers mandatory AA meeting, or I yes. heard you were going to do it in one of the videos you you talked about, you mentioned mm-hmm. it was coming up and I was like, oh, that's going to be good. I wonder what that's about. And yeah. um, and it was perfect. I mean, obviously just this wretched woman who mm-hmm. doesn't belong there and is just yeah. blasting everybody's anonymity and yeah. uh, <laughs> right off the bat, right? And yeah. just so into any sort of, any sort of, heady, disgusting gossip, you know, just mm-hmm. made up. And uh, so it was great. And I posted it on our Instagram. And I remember you reaching out and saying, I hope you weren't offended. And I was like, yeah. absolutely not. Well, um, and you know, it's it's something where um, all my friends, you know, a lar- in New York City, my community is largely people in recovery of all different mm-hmm. types of fellowships. So um, I, I asked my friend ahead of time and, you know, he just replied with, you know, an AA literature response. He said, you know, we are not a glum lot. He was like, you're not actually breaking anyone's anonymity. You know, I'm not, these, these are obviously not real people or real circumstances. I mean, they could be real circumstances, but, right. you know, it's right. a completely, it's all satire. Um, I tried to only mention, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and then leave it at that. I didn't want to talk about any of the literature or what actually happens at the meetings, but, you know, through pop mm-hmm. culture, most people know that, you know, it's like people sharing about what's going on in their life and their troubles with addiction. So I could really, I, I just tried to focus on that. Right. No, it was, it was perfect. And, you know, we, we do a, a, a podcast about recovery and I am in that, in that 12 step program and we are constantly concerned and trying to dance around, uh, you know, not breaking anonymity and the yeah. 11th tradition and all of these things. And I think that, you know, we do our best and we talk about, because the whole reason that we started the podcast was because there's so much other stuff than the one hour a day or a week or mm-hmm. that, that goes into me trying to stay sober and find Absolutely. recovery. And so, so that being said, um, uh, 
again, thanks for doing this. And My pleasure. One of the um, one of the things I like to ask people is where they first came across alcohol, whether it be in their own life or from a parent or grandparent, mm-hmm. or you know, sort of tracing back the alcoholic lineage. Oh God, story. yeah. I mean, my first drink was at 13 years of age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was like a Drew Barrymore drinker from a very young age. You know, I was I was partying, you know, way younger than I should have been. Um, but alcoholism is, is, you know, runs rampant in my family um, on both sides. Um, it affects mostly the men. A, a handful of my aunts have also, I mean, I have some aunts that are in the program as well. Um, but yeah, alcoholism is definitely something that, uh, has always been, uh, not really addressed in my family, but it's definitely a a part of, of everyone's, uh, most people's story. I shouldn't say everyone. Um, and they, you know, I, you can't diagnose anybody with alcoholism, but I would say that uh, my family definitely drinks more than, you know, other, I would say most people, um, and they drink, um, you know, a lot. It's a centerpiece of, you know, every family party, every family function, you know, there's always a table with, you know, handles of liquor. And that is, uh, yeah, I grew up in a, in an environment that definitely it it was around all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also, I know as well as a kid, we, we so easily and quickly pick up the habits of our parents, obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have memories of joking about pulling a bottle of absolute vodka and making screwdrivers, and my dad being like, no, 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 you're, you're, you're too young for that. Not that's mm-hmm. bad. You're just too young for that, you know? Yes. So especially just imagine like handles on the table and, you know, it's it's part of the fun and the party. And, you know, we, we try to, I think families often, and I don't know about you, but at least my family, you know, problems were hid, were hidden. Oh, Problems totally. were not yeah. talked about. So it was only the the fun and exciting parties and that kind of stuff that was out in the open. Um, yeah. So you, you, you grow up in an environment where drinking is acceptable and then you decide to have your first drink or how did the first drink come about at 13? Ooh, you know, that was, I, I will say this. It was not technically my first drink. It was my first drunk at 13. Okay. Um, I remember being a little younger at a family party and a cousin gave me one of those absolutely disgusting like TGI Friday like mudslide type drinks that all the ladies in my family like to drink. Mm-hmm. I had a couple sips of those, but you know, I wasn't buzzed. Um, I remember when I was in, you know, probably eighth grade going into ninth, my dad, there was like a Mike's hard lemonade in the fridge left over. My dad was like, yeah, you know, you can have that if you want, you can try it, you know, give it a whirl. Um, so there were little instances, but I never, I never got drunk, but I was uh, 13 and I was hanging out with a good friend of mine and my dad had a little liquor cabinet. And I remember it was Seagram's whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just remember chugging it. And then me and my friend, like, just like, we're drunk, drunk eighth graders. And we just walked around my neighborhood, like all afternoon, we were just, you know, just walking around the suburbs of Southern New Jersey. Um, and that was like my first drunk. And it was, uh, something that, you know, it's that same story that pervades a lot of shares in AA that it was like, I've arrived, this takes away all of my anxiety, all the stress that I've ever faced up until this point just melted away. And I immediately understood why everybody in my family drank. Yeah, immediately. Got it. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I know sometimes in media and stuff, New Jersey gets a bad gets bad press. But um. I, and I, 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 my family's from Woodridge. Okay. And I've only been there a couple of times, but it's quite beautiful. And like, yeah, Jersey is a very beautiful place. It's a very diverse state. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I, I defend New Jersey to the death just because as soon as I left it, I experienced all the jokes, you know, moving to New York city. And, you know, if you've only ever gone from the airport to New York city, no, you're not going to have a beautiful, you know, representation in your mind of the, the garden state. But, you know, in Northwest Jersey, it's mountainous. There's the Delaware water gap. Um, the Jersey shore again has a very negative reputation because of the sure. television show, but, you know, Southern New Jersey where, you know, Long Beach Island and Cape May, I think it has like the most Victorian <clears throat> homes in America. Um, and then you have the Pine Barrens in South Jersey near where I grew up. And it's just a mm-hmm. gorgeous, huge pine forest. And, you know, it's a, 
there's like Meadowlands and yeah, New Jersey's great. And, you know, it gave us the light bulb and Meryl Streep. So everybody can just, you know, back up. Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) Bruce Springsteen. I think it's the largest producer of blueberries in the world. So New Jersey's got a lot going for it. And the Pine Barrens is my, one of my favorite episodes of uh, the Sopranos too. Oh yes. Yeah. (laughs) So Aqua Teen Hunger Force, if you're familiar, if you've smoked weed in the last 10 years, takes place in (laughs) South Jersey. Um, so, you Carl's know, one of my favorites too. I I know tons of Carl's. None of this. <laughs> and none of this matters. This doesn't matter. None of this. I got matters. a lot of track suits. A lot of them. <laughs> um, gonna shine some sun where the sun don't shine. Yeah. So um, so you're 13. You're in New Jersey. You get your yeah. first drunk, and then is it? Now you obviously. Well, I don't know, but I would imagine that a 13 year old doesn't have regular access to alcohol. Is it something no, and, that starts uh, off? Yeah. You know, I was very, uh, very into academics in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did theater in high school. And, you know, the reputation with theater kids, you know, they're all drinking and having sex. And, you know, partially, partially true, um, I, I will say, in my experience. Um, but, yeah, so it was a thing that, you know, I, I did on the weekends. And it was very, very controlled throughout high school because I was super focused on my grades and really, you know, getting out of New Jersey. Yeah. So, so then it's just kind of like your typical thing. I was in, I did technical theater for a couple of years. So I was not, I wasn't in the circle. Uh I was sort of on the outside. I was the one who had to deal with the, the two by fours in the back and all that stuff. So, but anyhow, no show without, (laughs) without techies, there's no show without them. Um, so when would you say like, that the alcohol takes off or does it, you know, like you're like, all right, it starts yeah. to kind of take over. And it's a- for me, I noticed that it was becoming a problem my senior year of high school, um, which is fairly young, but it started to become something where um, I was hiding how much I was drinking, um, I was sneaking alcohol. Uh, I was trying to get it by any means necessary. My weekends pretty much revolved around it. Um, and it started to get to a point where I was, you know, I was a fall, I was fall down drunk. Um, and, you know, for me, it was, it was a combination of a lot of things. You know, I'm very, you know, I, I was coming to terms with the fact that I'm gay, which, you know, is not an excuse, but it, um, you know, it's a lot to deal with for a young person. At the time, everything is like, it's relative. So everything seems like a huge deal and life shattering. Um, And that helped a lot. And also I had a really bad eating disorder at that time too, uh, which I do talk about in meetings. I think sometimes it makes people a little uncomfortable, but for me, it's just another layer of shame and secrecy and privacy. And um, that really took off. And it, it was like a combination, you know, like a dual addiction and um i've I've since read about the the term drunkorexic and that was absolutely where i was as an 18 19 year old man they actually have a great mtv you know the show mtv true life remember that show vaguely yeah yeah they just did like a little documentary series about people like going through things or dealing with stuff and there was an episode called i'm a drunkorexic and i remember it and that's exactly where i was from like 18 to 22 it was just grappling with um, like a devastating eating disorder and just like always circling around alcohol to deal with it. So when you talk about being drunkorexic, yeah. can you can you describe some of the behaviors on a daily basis? With yeah, that? I mean, you you basically it, it, it's like having a part time job. Honest to God, like it's that level of stress and planning. You're constantly planning how much you can eat versus how much that you can drink so that you're like still able to function throughout the day. Um, you plot, you know, how, how much you can eat so that you can like maximize your drunk. And it also the alcohol, because you're not eating and you're like at a dangerously low weight, it impacts you so much more. And I was an absolute mess. And that led to isolation. That was really, uh, I would say in college from like 19 to 20, that was when I really pulled back from any social drinking because I became embarrassed by my own behavior and how I acted. And I, I, I wanted to drink at a certain level, but I physically could not handle 
my body could not handle the amount of alcohol that I wanted to consume. Um, and instead of embarrassing myself or working on the problem, like my friends were clamoring and saying, you have a drinking problem. Like you, you have a problem with how much alcohol you consume and how quickly you do. Um, I just retreated and I chose to drink on my own. And that's really when drinking at home at night and privately really took off. And, you know, that is, you know, isolation is just, uh, it's, it's what alcoholism wants. It's what your brain craves. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really, I I'm just trying to think about in my own, in my own experience, when you talk about, I didn't start getting focused and I was hyper-focused on calorie counting and it not, not in any sort of anorexic way, but because yeah. I was very overweight, very, I was, you know, I, I'm, I don't know what I'm at right now, probably like 215 or something like that, but I was at like 280. And then even in sobriety, try, I just couldn't lose that. And then I started yeah. counting calories and that really helped me. Right. So I was, so I had tons of, so it didn't seem like, oh, being in a calorie deficit every single day, but then it became this tedious, weird game where I was, I'd be eating cucumbers all day so I could eat a pint of ice cream at night. Yeah. And so, and I don't, I didn't think about it because I'm, I'm, I'm a guy in his forties and I'm overweight. So I'm trying to lose weight. So I kind of dismissed any of those um, yeah. eating disorders because I'm still kind of losing weight and, you know, things seem to be going okay. And it's very easy it was very easy for me to slip into that and not see it for what it was. And it took me another, I don't know. I mean, now, and I still look at, look at food differently and I'm still struggling yeah. with my relationship to food and, and what it is that I, that I want to, you know, accomplish in my day and what I need to eat and why mm -hmm. I shouldn't be trying to negotiate some horrible, you know, quote unquote treat at the end of the night, first thing in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so when you talk about the planning, like it's so true. Um, yeah. So when you, you were isolating yourself so that you can drink so that, you know, and, you know, being, being, being in that um, place is really, it's really hard. Oh, and, yeah. and do you, how long are you there? Do you, do you just drink and, not eat and drink and not eat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty much me my last year of college. Uh, I, I don't know how I maintained my scholarship. I don't know how I graduated. Um, I, it, was, it was really rough. And it was basically a constant cycle of, I need to get this work done first thing in the day so that I can drink to my heart's content the rest of the day. So it was like, it wasn't even functioning alcoholism, but it was semi-functioning at that point. I, I always got everything that I needed to get done academically done first thing in the day so that I could go to the liquor store and drink as much as I wanted until, you know, I blacked out. I don't think I went to bed for probably a good year of my life. Wow. Yeah. Um. And so this is this is the tail end of college. You graduate college? I did. Yeah, well, I graduated college. Um, you know, through this by the skin of my teeth. Uh, mm -hmm. I still had great grades, um, only because I, you know, I'm I'm a good writer, and I you know my degree was mostly writing a lot of essays, so I could sober up to write those, and I submitted those, and um, you know, then it was it it became a thing where you're out of college and what do you do now? Because now I'm in this cycle of just constant alcohol abuse and waking up and going to classes and all this is over. And then there was nothing left to do but deal with the drinking problem or, I mean, let it destroy me. I moved to New York to live with my sister after college for about a month. And she caught me the first, maybe like first two weeks she saw mm -hmm. that I, she knew that I was drinking um, and she was just like, this is insane. And I'll never forget at the end of that month in the summer, um, she left for work. I was at home and I downed maybe half a bottle of tequila, like 
right after she left and she came back from work just by chance. And I was so, so far gone in such a small amount of time that she drove me back home to New Jersey and said, I had no idea that Sean's drinking was at this level. I knew he liked to drink and party, but this is unmanageable and he's going to die. Um, and I went to rehab after college. Um, I was I was in a rehab facility for 21 days when I was 22. And I'll never I will never forget my first day. Uh, I was a huge, huge Amy Winehouse fan, huge. Um, and I used to think it was so glamorous. You know, she drank the way I did. She had an eating disorder the way that I did. She was just singing to me in my mind in college. Um, and she died. And I went to rehab a few days after she died. And I walked into that first, you know, like community meeting room. And up on the board was basically her obituary from the newspaper. And I took it off the wall. And I still have it today as a reminder that, you know, she died from from this. She her body gave out. She went into a coma and she yeah. she died from drinking as much as I like to drink at that time. And also she was horrifically underweight because like me she also had an eating disorder yeah so so you do 21 days in rehab is that something that yeah. you did you fall right into it and say like you know grabbing that obituary off the wall and say i have to do something or was it was it more kicking was it more screaming was it no i, I <clears throat> you know i knew i knew that i had an alcohol problem I knew, I knew that I was in this endless cycle of the way that I was drinking and I wanted out. The problem was I, to this day, in every facet of my life, have a hard time asking for help. And I didn't, you know, in my mind and the way that I grew up, your drinking or drinking too much was just something that you get a handle on. It was never seen as a, an illness. It was never seen as an addiction problem. It was something where basically, you know, man up and deal with it or don't drink or, you know, it, it, it's something that you can conquer on your own if you're strong enough. And um, that was how I viewed it. And in my mind, it was just I, I knew that I needed to stop drinking, but I didn't know even where to begin mm -hmm. to stop. So I was very willing um, to do it, but I was not willing for sobriety. I knew that I had to stop drinking, but I was not willing to be sober at 22 years old. I mean, I had a counselor ask me, you know, Kent, do you think you can go the rest of your life sober? And I looked her straight in the face and I said, well, I'm not going to give up weed. I'm not giving up marijuana. Like that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, I can <laughs> give up drinking because, yeah, and I, but I, and I did it for other people. And that's the worst thing that you can do. I did it for, to uh, reassure my parents. And I did yeah. it to reassure my sister at that time yeah. to yeah. prove, you know, I can stop drinking and everybody was cool because Sean, when he was high was fine. Everybody liked Sean when he was high. It was only Sean when he was drunk that was like, a, it was a problem, you know, like we're, we're worried. Yeah, there's, I, I hear this a lot and I certainly have um, done the same exact thing. I quit for somebody else. I quit for, tried to quit for a relationship or I got in trouble at work and mm -hmm. took a month off and thought, okay, well, I got that, that problem handled and it never really gets handled <laughs> until I, it gets handled. And you, you know, about two weeks ago, I heard a gentleman in a meeting who had a very similar story to mine. And he said something to the effect of, at that time, I couldn't quit for me because I didn't even like me. So why would I do something to help myself? You know, and he was like, I was, he was doing it for a girlfriend at the time. And he just said, you know, he's like, I would never do anything to benefit me because I didn't think I was worthy of living that like beautiful, sober life. And I would never, I didn't like me. So why would I do something for me? And that's absolutely where I was as a 22 year old young man. Yeah. Just, and the, it, the, the, the cycle of the shame and the guilt and the hangovers and everything and all the bad oh, behavior. Uh, and, yes. and then you, you perpetuate this, this self-loathing and that the only thing that's, and then for me, it was, you know, the alcoholism in my head is like, well, you're a piece of shit and I'm the only one who's going to be here for you. So you might as well just have another drink because this is the only way you ever get to feel good. And this is all you deserve. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, I, I love that, that sort of um, that sentiment of having to learn to love yourself to be worthy of taking care of yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, I mean that that's that's what it is. You know, it's the other side of the coin is self-destruction. You know, it's it's a slow suicide. It's yeah, it's terrible. And for you know, and some people it's not even slow. And I, I you know, I I have to come to that realization every day that with the amount that I like to drink when I drink, it could easily, easily kill me. Easily. I mean, you know, I could stop breathing, I could have an aneurysm, I could have a stroke. You know, alcohol is not a joke. It very slowly kills people over time more commonly. But there's a lot of people who think I'm just gonna get drunk like I normally do. And that's, you know, that's that's it for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I I have people close to me who are you know, currently doing that. And it's, I mean, it's hard to take the things that I've learned in sobriety and recovery and go, well, I guess you just need to continue to set a good example and be patient and be available. And that's all that I can do. You know what I mean? So it um, is, it's very hard. It's, it's, you know, I, you know, and I'll be honest with you. I've, I have not a first time winner in AA, I have had relapses since, you know, I stopped drinking alcohol. It's not something that for me, I was able to just put the plug in the jug and like put it away. I have had moments of weaknesses and that's usually when I've strayed from a spiritual, you know, uh, program when I've, you know, started isolating again, when I've gone away and that little voice in the back of my head says, well, you could, you know, just get drunk today. Who cares? And, you know, but logically I've, I don't think I've ever, once had a you know polite one day of drinking that's just not how i've ever as soon as i have alcohol my eyes go black like a shark and i want all alcohol that is around me yep yeah i Um, often joke that i don't i i don't drink like a lady unless that lady's betty ford (laughs) that's good rest in rest in peace former lady (laughs) former first lady betty ford um do so you you finish this rehab? You complete the twenty one days, and are you? I did the twenty one days. Renewed, refreshed. Yeah, I mean, I I went to uh, AA right after that, um, mm-hmm. and I started going to the meetings while I was at home in New Jersey. I was staying with my parents at the time. Um, I will say, I I didn't get it. I probably wasn't ready to get it. And again, I was doing this just for other people to say, "Well, I went to the meeting today." You know, I, I'm, I'm sober, you know, and I got probably close to 90 days. And then I start, you know, people, places and things. I started hanging out with people that I hung out with before and they all, all of my friends were overjoyed that I had stopped drinking. Everybody was so happy. Wow. They were all just like, Sean, like, we're so proud of you. We were so worried of you. Like, you know, and we're so worried about you. And, um, but, you know, for them, marijuana wasn't a big deal. So I just started smoking pot again. And I was on the marijuana maintenance program for years after that. But I, but I didn't drink because I knew that I would implode if I drank again. Mm-hmm. I knew that in my heart. Okay. So at this point, you've got it figured out. You're not going to drink and yeah. you're going to smoke weed and yeah. everything is everything is fine. The, you know, the marijuana maintenance program is, as you put it, which I've, I've heard from lots of people and like, everything's cool. No problems. No, everything is copacetic. I mean, and yeah, I mean, things, things started getting better. I moved back to New York city. Um, I got involved in improv and comedy and theater groups. Um, but it, everything was slowed down to the nth degree because I wanted to be high all day. You know, mm. I, I often joke again that like my life for those three and a half years was Groundhog's Day. It was the exact same thing every single day, um, except I didn't learn anything. At least Bill Murray learns things in Groundhog's Day. Like he learns French and how to play piano and stuff like that. I wasn't learning anything. I was right. existing. I was not living. Right. You know, it's funny. He doesn't he doesn't drink or smoke in that movie. at all. I mean, I guess there's the occasional beer or something, but. God, I couldn't yeah. imagine waking up like that and being an alcoholic or being. Oh, I used addict. to. I used to, you know, pack a bowl the night before so that I could reach over and have it ready in the morning, like as mm-hmm. soon as like it was a morning cigarette. Um, and it was, it was, yeah. I mean, uh, terrible, terrible. I, yeah. So was there a, was there a particular moment where you realized if I want things to be better, I have to get 
the marijuana out of my my life what happened was i had alcohol again uh i tried it alone um when i and i i I, just like what's in the back of the big book you know it's that story where you know it's what it's the businessman who gives up alcohol and then he's like 50 years old and he retires and he thinks he can have a drink again and then he's dead in a couple years yeah i thought uh, i'm in a different place i've conquered a lot of my demons i'm in a much different spot than i was i can try alcohol again and i went on a five-day bender like immediately and it was off to the races and so much worse than it was it was like i was making up for years of not drinking mm-hmm. um and my friends found out and my sister found out and i had to come clean and that day I, you know, real hungover, I went to my first New York City AA meeting. And what is, um, without giving away too much, is you say New York City AA meeting, is there something intrinsic or specific to those meetings as opposed to, say, where I live, California, or the one I went to on the beach in Hawaii, or? Hmm. You know, I think the the overall message is the same, obviously, you know, I've, I've been to different fellowships meetings, even if I haven't engaged in that substance, and you still get the same, the same message. And we're all, you know, dealing with substance abuse. I think New York City is interesting, because there's literally a meeting at any time of the day. Wow. You know, even before pandemic, I could go to a meeting at two o'clock in the morning if I wanted to. Um, It is truly the city that never sleeps. You can go to a meeting at four o'clock in the morning, as the bars are letting out, you can go, I mean, any time of day. And it's, it's a very, it, you, it becomes a very small community. You know, New York City, there's 8 million people in, in, on, you know, in the five boroughs. But you begin to find out who your people are. And you, I mean, it was the first time in my, in my years of living in New York City where I had friends that I could call at any time of the day, where I had people that wanted to hang out. You know, my life got so much bigger because of New York City AA. And also, I will say they're um, a little bit more inclusive of everybody. You know, when I was going to AA in South Jersey, um, Laura, I mean, I'm, I grew up Catholic and it's a very large Catholic population. So you ended every meeting with the Lord's Prayer and it was very focused on, you know, that Catholic version of God. And I would say New York City, they really do focus on higher power and you can make anything your higher power. Right. You know, you want the room, you want that doorknob, you know, you, whatever you want to be your higher power that can be it. So they, they're a little bit more, I would say, inclusive in that way. Huh. That's, I mean, that's great. I, I've always, when I hear people talk about sometimes being frustrated with um, religion being so much a part of the program, and I've, I've never experienced it myself. And so yeah. I'm grateful for that. And I know that um, there's lots of different meetings, and that's one of the beautiful things about it. Yeah. Uh, so after the five day bender, this is when you, you, you go, okay, now I'm done. Had you had enough to drink at that point? It, it I mean, it all came crashing down and I, I did realize, okay, things have not changed in mm-hmm. X amount of years. They haven't, you know, I, and I really just started listening for the first time when I was going to AA in New Jersey, I was just kind of, you know, looking at the clock and waiting to leave, I really started to listen to people that were my age or younger or who had really similar experiences to mine. And they were telling my story. And, you know, I, I started to come to the fact that like, okay, I'm not alone. And I can, you know, if I use this simple program, find some sort of, you know, being close to serenity. And I really liked the fellowship. And I liked that there were other younger people that were like, hey, I get it. I get it. Like, I totally understand where you're coming from. I know it's frustrating. I know you feel like your life is over right now, but it's not. Like, you can live and I live as a sober, younger person um, in New York. And it's tough in New York. You know, there's, I mean, 100 feet from where I live, you know, I, I can go buy alcohol if I wanted to. So it's, uh, you know, and there's, there's alcohol available 24 seven in New York city. So it's tough, but yeah, that was like my first realization that like, okay, people are doing this. People are honest. They're living lives that I want. And that was the other thing. It's like, do you want what they have? And at that time I did, I really wanted what they had. 
<clears throat> and so it sticks and you follow through and do the program and it this is this is the time where it's it solidifies for you yeah i mean i was sober for three years um at mm -hmm. that point i mean I, yeah for about yeah three years and i you know was working with a sponsor unfortunately my sponsor relapsed so that was a little bit of a setback but um yeah i mean i was i was religiously going to these meetings no pun intended um, and I, I really started, you know, I was, it just became part of my everyday life. A, you know, it was who my friends were. It was what I did in my spare time. It was what I spent my evenings doing, you know, going to bad diners after meetings and talking with people. Um, yeah, but I mean, it, you know, I, you fall into the dangerous trap of it becoming a social club and it's, you know, fellowship is an important part of AA, but it's not a social club. So what do you mean by that? Mm. Well, the fellowship mm. is important because ultimately, like, you know, you need, to, again, for me, isolation is very dangerous. So I need to talk to people who are in AA every day. I need to text other alcoholics. I need to be in contact and hear those reminders all the time of how bad it gets when I forget what, you know, the day before day one was like. Mm. But ultimately, it's not just a it's 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 not just a social club it, it's the fellowship is a part of it and you need to be putting in that spiritual work and the you know the, the mental work with somebody who's guiding you through the program who's done all the 12 steps themselves who's helping you and it's a you know it's it's a 50 50 it's work and working on yourself and getting outside of your comfort zone and also you know finding your group of people your pack to you know go through yeah. it with yeah. Yeah. You gotta, I have to remind myself too, that the work needs to be done. And for me, a lot of that has to do with writing stuff down. And I've done that. Um, it's easy to kind of just, well, go to the meetings and have a donut and have a cup of yeah. coffee and chit chat and blah, blah, blah. And then you go, Oh, that felt good. Cause I got a little social time in, but not doing the steps and not doing the work. It's, it's just a very good point. Um, and then I think I've, immediately I'm struck with, oh, what have you done lately, John? <laughs> you know, yeah. like that, 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 yeah. So uh, remember that thing you were working on, that thing that keeps bothering you? Have you uh, checked in with that yet? Um, it's, it's, it's just an important point that doing the work and being that it is a spiritual program and that it yeah. is something that you are there to work on and make life better because, yeah, the, the alternative is terrible, deadly, and you know, pretty awful. Can I ask you a little bit about um, the eating disorder? Yeah, certainly. Um, now, during all of this, does did did you find like marijuana? Does that change your relationship with food? How did you eventually come to a healthier relationship with with eating? I think. Um... It, it's it, eating disorders are very compulsive and it's about control. Um, and I think for, well, for me, I mean, it's, it's different for everybody. I, sh I can't give a blanket statement, but for me, I think when a lot of stressors were removed in my life, when I stopped the constant cycle of the drinking and the shame and the secrecy of that, and I was removed from the, you know, over pressure that I was putting on myself in college to maintain a scholarship and graduate and, you know, always give this outward facade of being perfect. Once that was removed, it relaxed a little bit. Um, and it's also, it's about the same kind of work that a lot of alcoholics have to do where it's just like, you're, you're better than this. You are worth more than this. You know, it's a daily struggle even today to love myself. You know, I, I have to give those little pats on the back and reminders to myself. Um, in my mind, you know, I am my own like set of immigrant parents. Like it's never good enough. It's never always more. Always, you should always be working harder. You should always be trying to get more things. Um, and I know that that is part of alcoholism and an eating disorder. And I think it calmed down as I got a little bit older and I realized that it is absolutely not healthy, but also um, that it, it's, um, I, I don't want to say like counterproductive because uh, I think a lot of people, when they think an eating disorder, they think it's about um, vanity. 
and they think it's about how you look. And certainly looks are, are a part of it. But also I knew that at 138 pounds as a six foot two man, I did not look good, you know? But it was about that control and it was about feeling like that rush of dopamine from, you know, getting on the scale and it's lower than it was the day before. And it's, it becomes a habit that you need to rewire in your brain. Um, And it takes a while to be like, yes, I feel full, but that's not a negative. I need food to live. I need food so that I'm not tired all the time. And you kind of have to rewire your brain to have a different relationship with food. And yeah. just like I just like I have to do constantly with alcohol and remind myself how deadly it is internally and mentally, even if the outward appearance seems fine. Right. Yeah, I, I just made any sense at it, all. Well, <laughs> it, it does. And I ask and I'm, I'm extraordinarily um, curious only because in my sobriety and I, and I, sometimes I feel guilty talking about maybe me possibly having an eating disorder because, you know, I've got a f- extra 15 pounds here and I've, you know, ran a half marathon and I run, try to run almost every single day and do all these things. And um, just trying to understand my own relationship with food, because there was yep. a period where I remember th- there was a lot of deprivation to mm-hmm. lose some of the weight. There were days where I was like, why am I so dizzy? I don't feel well. I just need to yeah. sit down. I'm fine. I just need to drink some water and sit down. But I wasn't eating anything or, mm-hmm. you know, the weird. So m- I guess, especially also as a man, and thinking about yeah. having an eating disorder, uh-huh. it's seen as what a, a sign of weakness, or it's, it's oh yeah, as, there's as a yeah. it's 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 a thing that women deal with and that we mm-hmm. as men don't deal with, and so all of this other mental social stigma and wanting to just have a better relationship with my food and the thing that I need, right? And I, my friend's dad puts it. He says he talks about. Um, he's an AA and he talks about going to like OA meetings, like overeaters anonymous. And he said, imagine if you were, you were an alcoholic, but you were required to have three shots of tequila every single day and only three shots. How do you, how do you function? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's, you know, I'll be honest when I first started like qualifying and sharing in AA meetings, I didn't even talk about the eating disorder because I felt such extreme shame and embarrassment because like you said, I had those preconceived, you know, toxically masculine notions of this is, this is shameful. You're a man. You need to be tough. Like how, how dare you talk about something like this? I've been in meetings where people literally talked about things that are unimaginable, you know, and they shame it, People, if they heard them, would just think like that is just the absolute dregs of society. And even after hearing those things, I was still ashamed to share that I had an eating disorder. But I got to tell you, the first time I did, people came up to me and said, you know, I loved your share about drinking, but thank you so much for talking about having an eating disorder because nobody wants to talk about it, especially men. And it's not, you know, it's not an issue that just affects gay men, which a lot of people think. It is pervasive in the gay male community, I will say. Almost every gay male that I know in New York City has had some sort of time in their life when they've restricted the amount of food that they were eating to purposely lose weight. But it affects so many men, you know, athletes, people that are, you know, bodybuilders, you know, men that are, you know, trying to better themselves or, you know, they want to get the girl. You know, it's this thing where like, and we see it as like, good for you. You look great. You've lost so much weight. And those compliments, you know, addiction is a hell of a drug. I mean, fame and, you know, validation, that's a hell of a drug. Yes. Validation. Oh my God. Valid. Give me all the fucking validation. People telling me, Sean, you look great for the first time in my life. Oh, give me all of that. And, you know, it's, it's a thing where I, yeah, men just in our society just don't want to talk about the fact that they're like, I don't like my body. And I want to lose weight because that's that's a ladies' issue, and that's horseshit. It's absolute fucking horseshit. And regardless, across the board, 
We live in a society where you are constantly inundated with what the perfect body or what your body should look like. It's everywhere. And it doesn't just affect women. I mean, you yeah. have the perfect male physique everywhere. And if you yeah. see that constantly, and that's just reinforced in your brain, and then you look in the mirror and you don't have a six pack, you don't have huge arms, you don't have, you don't have this, you don't have that. It's like, oh, well, I got to change this. Instead yeah. of just being like, no, everybody's different. Literally, everybody is different. And if you, for health reasons, want to lose weight, that's fine. But it's a, you know, it, it's a, it's a real travesty what we've done to American men, and saying that like your concern is weakness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel weak. You know, I, when I go out yeah. there and run seven miles, I feel pretty powerful, right? When yeah. I it's just, you know, okay, so I'm I'm in my 40s and it's going to take me a little bit longer and it's going to be a little bit harder because just of my metabolism and all that kind of stuff. And so there's all these different things and just not learning to love myself, right? Regardless yeah. of the 15 extra pounds and mm -hmm. and there was quarantine and all the fear and anxiety that was going on. And so yeah. why not eat a little bit more and stay inside and don't go run out in there because and so on and on and on and on. And so it's something that, you know, we talk about my co-host and I talk about on the podcast a lot because we both were big guys and we both yeah. lost a lot of weight. And so I really think it's important. And then as I get into athletics and running and stuff like that, and then you start to see it, like go turn on ESPN. What do they talk about? Height, weight, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, weighing yeah. in, how much these guys weigh. I mean, Nobody talks about men's bodies more than men on ESPN. <laughs> yeah. So, and we just, and then we, yeah, we shame, we shame men for not being perfect. And then we tell them not to talk about it. Yeah. And I think it's a, I think it's something in society and, you know, maybe through pop culture that we, we just tell men like, why, why do you care about it? You know, at the same time, we say you should only care about how you look because this person looks that way, but also it's like, who cares how you look? You know, it's like, man, you know, it, it's like, you know, that, that honeymooners trope where like, there's like a, you know, a big burly man and he's got like this skinny petite wife. And, you know, we just reinforce that, you know, it's like the king of, up until like the king of Queens, even still today, you have that thing where it's just like, yeah, you can just be like a big guy. Who cares? Who cares what you look like? And it's like, well, people do care what they look like because though that's presented in pop culture, the other side of it is that you're just constantly inundated with the perfect male physique. Mixed messages, yeah. Yeah, so you should care about it, but also, why do you care about it? So, you know, and the thing that I hear is that it's important to share it and it's important to be open about it and it's important yeah. to, um, I certainly think health and and good diet is is important as well and being conscious of what I am eating and one of my one of my running routes is around a McDonald's and there is no <laughs> shortage of people going through the McDonald's and like I don't want to shame anybody for getting McDonald's but I just found that I, it's not something that jibes with my current lifestyle and the one yeah, that I, I mean... want to live for a long time you know yeah, you gotta you gotta make choices that you know make you feel good, but at the same time, you know you're human, and if you want to indulge a little bit here and there, why not? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Um. So, and just kind of getting back to to the AA and and the program and stuff like that, and being sober. So, was this this was the final time? This is when you. So, you are now. How long have you been sober? Well, you know, my sobriety, it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a wild ride. It's okay. been um, <laughs> something, you know, just to be totally honest, you know, full disclosure. Um, I had a really nasty relapse in 2019. Uh, my father passed away super suddenly. Um, and I, it's, that's not the excuse at all. Right. It's something uh, I had been straying from meetings. I was putting personalities over principles. And that's why I also say it's not just a social club because when you begin to have problems with the social club, it can take you away from the actual point of the program and the work. Uh, yeah. I'd been straying from that for for a few months, and um, and I, I I drank as soon as uh, my my dad died. You know, it was it would happen in like twenty days, um, and I was at home in New Jersey, and my family deals with a lot of things through alcohol, and I just said fuck it. 
and I started drinking. And that took me out uh, for about six months until a, a June of 2019. And um, then I got back for eight months, had a little slip at the beginning of quarantine, and then I've been back in the program since. Well, I mean, one of my favorite things that I hear in, in my, my home group is the guy says, one of the old guys goes, we don't care that you went out. We're just glad that you're back. 100%. You know, and I have so many friends that haven't, aren't necessarily um, dedicated to AA. They haven't really gone to the meetings, but people do reach out to me because I, I'm not, I don't go around constantly talking about my sobriety, but when you're out with people and they say, oh, why aren't you having a drink? I just say, hey, I don't drink. And a lot of people have confided in me. Um, and I always tell people, listen, even if you have a drink tonight, try to stay sober tomorrow, you know, just because it's it's so much better. It's better to have one day sober than to have no day sober for me. Um, and I, you know, I always I always stress that I will always, always come back to AA. You know, I knock on wood that and I try to take it one day at a time, truthfully, and embrace that motto, not just say it. Um, that, you know, every morning when I, when I wake up, it starts over, you know, the, the, the counter starts over in my mind and I have to make it to the end of that day, you know, sometimes to the end of that hour, sometimes to the end of that, you know, that minute, if, if, if need be, but, yeah. um, I always try to, I, I know in my heart that I am a better person and a better human being. And I show up for everyone in my life more and, uh, you know, everything in my life is more aligned when I'm sober. So regardless of what happens in my life, I will always come back to AA because, you know, I haven't gotten maybe all those cash and prizes, but my life is so much bigger and better and more beautiful and serene because of sobriety. And I like sober Sean much, much, much more than drinking Sean. Amen to that, man. I, 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 it's was a pleasure running into you on the internet and I'm so grateful that, you know, we got to sit here and talk for a little bit yeah, and, um, share, share your truth as they say, and talk about some things that a lot of folks don't usually talk about. And just, especially the eating disorder and just the compulsion and the control mm -hmm. and all of the, th all of the madness that goes on in our heads over the shit oh, that yeah. we do. And it's, it's good to hear it from, from somebody else. And I do, um, I want to ask you a little bit more about your, um, what am I trying to say? Your comedy, your performance, uh, mm -hmm. the stuff that you do there in New York and, and, and what else? Because it's not, uh, I mean, like I said, I, I follow you on TikTok and now on Instagram because um, you crack me up. <laughs> but what else do you do in that in that vein? Yeah, I mean, I I've done uh, theater, I've done mm -hmm. Broadway and off Broadway theater. I, I you know I've technically been doing it for close to twenty years now, um, and I got a little bored with theater, um, mostly because I was doing other people's work, and I don't <laughs> um, I don't mean that in a negative way. You know, technically, even if you're on Broadway, you're doing somebody else's work. But I just thought. I want to take it. I want to take a swing at writing and performing my own material. Mm -hmm. um, so I broke away and I started doing stand-up comedy, um, and that you know went really well. It, it, it worked out great. Um, you know, I won won a comedy festival. I got some residencies at clubs, um, and then I, I wanted to take a swing at sketch comedy. And before the pandemic started, you know, in New York City, it had to be. Well, you know, you have to get a production team, you have to get a camera guy, a sound guy, you know, you need to pay these actors, you need to get a, a shooting space. And I was like, okay, this is a lot. I don't really know what the fuck I'm doing. I can write the material, but I don't really know any of the other technological side of this. And then the city shut down. So theater and theater stopped, stand-up comedy stopped. And I had all this time on my hands. And I was doing Instagram characters, you know, on my stories. And my friends would eventually were just like, you know, you should really check out TikTok. And in my mind, TikTok was just like 12 year olds doing like choreographed dances. Right. You know, that, because that's all that I had seen on like Facebook or Instagram when people would share stuff from TikTok. It was just like teenagers dancing. And I was like, I, I don't know what the fuck that is. That's not for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then my friends started sharing like comedy videos and they were like, I really think there's an audience for these different characters that you have to just do short form. 
And I honest to God just started doing it out of my bedroom in Brooklyn uh, by myself. You know, all of my characters are either on the phone yelling at somebody off screen or looking directly in the camera to do like their own show. And that's really just out of necessity. I didn't have anybody else to film with. So I had to come up with like these little game points where like, okay, well, they can be on the phone and then the joke will be the answer and the guest can fill in, you know, the viewer can fill in what the question was. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they can realize that, you know, I'm screaming at my husband who doesn't give a fuck about, you know, my life and he's not even responding to me off screen. And, you know, that can be part of a joke. Um, and then Helen came along and I just thought, you know, I have this character and I think it'd be funny if she just started doing reviews. And that was the game that I came up with with Helen. I was like, okay, so I have this character. I don't know what to do with her. I can't do super long form things right now, even though I have, I have Helen Cumlicker's like two, three, four, five page sketches written about this woman. Wow. I can't film them right now. Right. Um, and they're all about her life and her family and her husband and her kids and her friends. Um, and I, you know, I just, I don't have the capacity to do it right now. So I thought, okay, this woman was based out of my restaurant work. It would be funny if an old woman just very harshly reviewed restaurants. And that game sort of came about in my head from an old SNL skit. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's Chris Farley and Adam Sandler. They're an old couple and they're reading the Zagat or Zagat, however you want to pronounce it, mm-hmm. review, the guide. And they're not mean. They're literally just like an old couple and the man is miserable and the wife is super excitable. And that was Chris Farley. And they're just reading the Zagat review of restaurants. And I thought, okay, well, they can, she can review restaurants that she's visited and she fucking hates all of them, hates all of them. Um, and yeah, it's just like, she, yeah. she doesn't review places that she likes. She only reviews places she hates. So that was the game that I could come up with for Helen. And um, that's, that's just taken off and it's been a lot of fun because I, I literally can't do anything else. Yeah. 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 It's, it's amazing the things that have come out of, out of people's creativity and necessity, you know, just to, it is absolutely necessity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, 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 uh, it's great. I love to, I love to see people in sobriety doing creative things. I know one of the things we talk a lot about on the uh, on the podcast too. My my partner, my co-host, he's he's an artist by trade. He was a tattoo artist up until last March. Yeah. Um, but we talk a lot about the creativity, and we get stuck in these notions of um, feeling like the the alcohol is necessary for that, and then realizing that one hundred percent quite the opposite, right? I never accomplished. <laughs> anything when I drank I never accomplished a goddamn thing when I drank you know my life has been so much bigger in sobriety my creativity flourishes and I gotta say I love I love working with alcoholics um, because they're usually incredibly smart they're very hardworking. they're passionate um, and they feel very deeply and I like working with people like that that are you know dedicated yeah and there's so 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 many creatives in New York City, in all fields, all fields of art that mm-hmm. uh, deal with addiction, and I don't—I mean, I'm not a—you know—I'm not a scientist or a therapist. I don't know what that is. You know, maybe it's just because it's my world, so I meet more of those creatives that dealt with substance abuse, or they're just more open about it. But I do know a lot of very talented people yeah. that have, you know, realized I have a problem with X substance. And they've overcome it. That's awesome. Yeah, man. Um, well, so where can people find you if they want to find you online? So I am on Instagram and TikTok at Sean Barry Parsons. That's Sean with an E, like Liza with a Z. Um, S-E-A-N Barry Parsons. Uh, and that's where you can find all of my videos I always back I always upload to Instagram because TikTok takes things down for no reason at all. They have like a crazy communist Chinese community guidelines censorship mm-hmm. system. So they just remove shit at random, especially Helen Cumlicker videos. So you can see all the videos on TikTok. Right. Um, I don't know if they're gonna be up for long, mm-hmm. you know. So Instagram is great to follow on there. And Instagram I also post um, a lot more longer form things. So TikTok, you can only do a minute. I upload to IGTV or now this stupid fucking reels thing that they have. 
Um, so I, there's a lot more longer form videos on the Instagram and it's my personal Instagram. So I, there's a lot more content and, you know, comedic right. stuff that I upload there. Well, cool. Sean Barry Parsons. Thank you so much. Thank I you. appreciate it's been a pleasure this chatting. Yeah, you too. And we will, um, we'll see you and, and Helen sometime yeah. soon. I'm sure I will see you in the funny pages. <laughs> cool. Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at aisforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>